0: Welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Any technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today, we're not talking about magic items. Uh, No. (laughs) We are actually going to be talking about the exact opposite. We're going to be talking about mundane items in a fantasy game. Because I think it's something that just gets glossed over i don't think it's something that people really think about too terribly much
1: they do often get glossed over which is unfortunate also i've run a couple games or i've not personally run games but i've sat and played in games where the dm wanted to specifically run a low magic setting and at that point these mundane items become extremely important and extremely valuable right and
0: you know if you're playing something like an osr game where you're playing more towards the D&D 1E, the AD&D 2E, you start getting a whole lot more mileage out of your mundane items. There's not as much magic bloat, if you will, because a magic item in AD&D, that's a big deal. It really, really is. Yeah. You know, so you would have to do a lot with your non-magical stuff because most of the stuff you're going to come across is non-magical.
1: Right. I mean, even in AD&D and even second edition, you're going through and you had your your craftsmanship or your masterwork quality items before you even had your magical items. And so something just had to be extremely well-made. And the fact that it was well-made was almost magical in its own right as far as the power scale of things sometimes went.
0: Yeah, even up to third edition 3.5, you did have those masterwork Quality items, which were items that had a bonus to attack and damage rolls, but were not magical in and of themselves. And if you wanted to make your own magical weapons or magical armor, you had to get masterwork armor or masterwork weapons to start with. You could not place an enchantment on something that was not at least of a certain quality. Correct. So, yeah, masterwork items were definitely something that. Older editions had that 5e does not, and that is something that I think works to the detriment of 5e a little bit. It leans it more towards a particular type of playstyle where you end up having more prevalent magic. It's harder to do low magic in 5e because of that.
1: It really is. As I've said before, 5e really is the player is a superhero version of D&D, which is a lot of fun and is a lot easier to get into. But once you start getting kind of your more gritty players and are starting to look for more of a challenge, that is actually a good thing to do is start trying to lean them off of some of those magical items.
0: Right. And giving them... We'll get into that. We'll get into that. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go ahead and start off with just a quick definition of what we mean by mundane items. And quite simply, these are items which are not magical. Okay. I mean, that is the baseline definition that we're talking about today. Just items that are not magical. You know why you should have them in your game, the implications for your game for having a prevalence of mundane items, things of that nature.
1: So I have a handful of ideas myself and some of them might kind of brush on that limit. They might be a little bit of a cheat, but not terribly. So what are your first thoughts? Well, my
0: first thought is by fleshing out mundane items in your setting, you are demonstrating that magic is a special thing and not a common thing.
1: Yes, absolutely. You are
0: imposing A natural limitation to magic within the setting. Because, you know, if you have a lot of mundane items in your setting, that means that there are people who are making them. That means there are people who are using them. And that means that there are people who are using them instead of magic. Yes. And that's the big part, is they're using it instead of magic. And so you're having to figure out why Are they using a mundane item instead of magic? Is it a scarcity thing? Is it a practicality thing? Is there some other reason for it? And so that gives you a whole lot of leeway in the whole world building aspect of it to really talk about what does magic
1: actually do in your setting. That does make for a really good scenario. And that was one of the more interesting games I played. Again, it was a low magic setting. And in the setting of the game I played, magic was actually outlawed. And so you could have a wizard or a sorcerer or even a cleric. And yeah, you could cast a spell. But if you did it openly, you were openly breaking the law and therefore had consequences for those actions.
0: Yeah. And that could be an interesting way to go about it. I think that it is equally interesting to go more along the lines of your character is a protagonist in this story that you're telling together because they are one of the select few that has access to magic
1: okay I've actually started recently reading the Mistborn series from Brandon Sanderson, and that kind of starts getting a little bit of flavor of that as well, as there are certain people who have access to magic, and be they nobility or just the rare exception. And this does build a lot of story building for your characters as well, and a lot of chance for role play. Like, where did their magic come from? How did they find it? Was it, you know, some sort of secret knowledge in a book that the wizard found? Or does the sorcerer have a very specific bloodline? Was the cleric touched by God? And I mean, you could go through a whole thing with that of where this magic came from and where it spouts from, which can be very, very interesting. Right. Yeah. So we have these reasons. And so beyond the magical characters that are innately going to have some sort of magic ability, and again, your clerics, your paladins, your sorcerers, your warlocks, your wizards, occasionally your rangers. Your bards. Your bards. Yeah. Uh,
0: Artificers. Yeah. Basically, everybody but Rogue, except for a few subclasses, and Fighter, except for a few subclasses. And And Monks. Well, Barbarian has a couple subclasses that have magic to them, too. So, those four classes Fighter, Monk, Rogue, and Barbarian, those are the only ones that aren't really tied to magic in some way, shape, or form.
1: Though I think the Artificer would probably excel in this. No item realm, because again, they will be tinkerers. Yeah, and they will be inventors. And so at this point, you can get a very steampunk feel to your games, which I absolutely adore as well.
0: Yeah, and the artificer lends itself well to that type of game because now you can substitute tech for any magical effect. Exactly. I mean, it's just weird science at this point.
1: Don't get me singing the song because I'll do it. <laughs> weird science do 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 do, do. <laughs> be-dee, 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 be 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 okay we
0: need to I'm we need right. to stop this before we get you know copyright
1: <laughs> we're still under fair use for good but if we were going to set up this world personally i would start breaking things down i would say healing spells could only be performed by your paladin the clerics which is pretty standard anyway I would say druids, too. I mean, because that's that's a natural
0: magic. But I would actually personally say that their healing is less of a miraculous instant thing and more of an accelerated natural healing. So it's not like, oh, I cast cure wounds and your your stab wound just closes up and you're able to get up and run around. It's more of a, okay, so you got stabbed in the guts. Well, I'm going to use my magic to make sure that you don't die. But it's still going to take you a couple, three days for this to fully
1: heal up. I like that. But where I was going to go is I would actually break this down and use those wonderful skill sets that never get used. So I would hold your clerics and your druids and possibly your rangers. And I would give them advantage on your nature and your medicine checks. So they can do healing that way. I would say your druids might be able to use an alchemist kit, but your wizards absolutely would. So again, kind of skirting the rule here on the magical item, but a potion of some sort or a tincture or an elixir. It's not necessarily a magical item, but it is a potent medicine created from nature or some sort of pharmacopoeia that they created. Obviously, again, your artificers can make technology your rogues might wind up, again, using a technology in a weird way. I would probably wind up letting them use something like a grenade or using a potion for like a flame bomb or a Molotov cocktail. So I would start breaking up the way your brew kits to make distilled alcohol. So I have these things that where magic no longer is, but we know technology can suffice, I would start divvying these up amongst the classes. So certain classes either have advantage or exclusive access to proficiencies within those skills.
0: I I don't know that I would go quite that far, because I think that skills supersede classes. Okay. I think that anyone who is willing to take the time to devote to a skill, to learn a skill, should be able to use it. I don't think that those skills should be limited to specific classes,
1: then like, at that point, I would give expertise or advantage with those because they are going to be more in line with those because of their, you know, again, using class as profession or lifestyle, whatever it may be.
0: Right, and um, and I get, you know, I'm okay with giving certain classes the ability to take proficiency in a skill automatically without okay. having to devote additional effort to learning that skill. However, I don't think that any skill should be barricaded off to any particular class just because they chose that class and that's no, where that. That and fair. that's where in 5e backgrounds come in so handy right. because exactly. that's how you can pick up skill proficiencies that are outside of the norm for your class yes and so you know, I, I think that you know tying these abilities to certain skills as opposed to certain spells really would work
1: Yes, absolutely. So using these skills like I said, I absolutely would start making use of that alchemist kit that never get used. That brewer's kit that, you know, the dwarf will use on occasion cuz he's a dwarf and he wants to drink while you're out doing dwarfy stuff and that's about the only use of this kit. Cook's tools. Your cook's Cooking tool. implements. Yes. Food, using food. <laughs> Your armorer's tools for things like bark skin, you know, and hey, I I can take the nature around me and I've learned to reinforce my own armor is a huge spell. It's a great spell. And why can't you tinker with your own stuff and learn to reinforce your armor? Crafting skills really got left behind in fifth edition, which is unfortunate.
0: Yeah, I think specifically because so few classes get tool proficiencies and so few backgrounds give you automatic tool proficiencies. It's more difficult to build a tool proficiency into a class, into a character. Yeah. Take, for example, my kobold monk that I ran in your game. Okay. He has proficiency with Tinker's tools. Yeah. Because his whole backstory is he is a sewer worker. I mean, he he works in the sewer under this city, and his job is to maintain the steam pipes. And so he is proficient with Tinker's tools because that allows him to make repairs, whatever those repairs happen to need to be. And so I was able to use my Tinker's tools in several instances, like to repair our bard's rapier after it got damaged following a gray ooze attack. Mm -hmm. A couple other things, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but that was me And and I had proficiency with Tinker's tools specifically because I said, hey, James, I want to have proficiency with Tinker's tools. Can I have that?
1: Yeah. And as a DM, there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't be able to. And again, that kind of comes along the line of the rule of cool. And if your player has something to ask, I mean, proficiency with the tool set. Yeah, go ahead and grant it as long as the player doesn't try to abuse it, which would be really hard to abuse proficiency with tools really so i mean yeah roll fit and ian did a great job with that extra bonus
0: and you know that's another thing where as long as you can explain why as long as you have a reason why you're not just saying oh i want to be proficient in thieves tools yeah but you're a monk yeah you're like why why are you proficient with thieves tools what from your background is giving you this proficiency if you can so explain I'm that the
1: monk, yeah, I was going to say, so my character as a monk, I was blindfolded and I was expected to work on intricate like devices and locks and mechanisms so I could have better understanding of my own body in my hand so I could control my movement better would be something along those lines. Kind of like, you know, they have the people that clean their tools, you know, or their their weapons while blindfolded, that kind of thing would be along those lines maybe their monastery or their abbey was poorly lit and there was a door that he always had to get to that was locked or jammed or maybe accessing a part of the abbey they were not supposed to and so over time he came became proficient at doing this if your character can come up with a reason for it let him play it
0: or you know maybe they're just a reformed criminal Yeah. You know, they started off living this life of petty crime and something happened. They had a near death experience and they decided to forego all of their criminal past and go on this journey to self enlightenment, you know, self atonement. And so they ended up leaving and joining this monastery as a okay, okay, fate, I got my message. I'm not doing this anymore.
1: maybe they were sent to the monastery as a punitive action and yeah. you know it's part of their punishment and
0: something akin to like the night's watch in song of ice and fire you know yeah. you were a criminal instead of executing you you take the black you go up and stand on the wall
1: yeah i could see that and actually that would be a really good story for like a sect of monks that do like civic work you know and they have a vow like it's particularly noble thieves yeah. and they have to take a vow of poverty and they have to beg for their food and they have to offer aid whenever they see people who need it and that is the entire sect of this monk you know abbey or whatever and they're just trying to reform noble thieves because they're too rich that you can't exile them or outright punish them without causing some sort of familial backlash and so therefore they go here and now you've got a really honestly kind of a compelling story for a monk that probably multi-classes with rogue or fighter the way of the locksmith yeah (laughs) all the (laughs) locksmith. no that would be awesome so what kind of mundane items would you want to see used to not supplement but to supplant or instead of magic items what do you see something like maybe a magic rune or a scrying device i mean how are we going to get around these things since we are going to Extremely limit, if not fully eliminate magic from these scenarios or magical items.
0: Well, I think you touched on a really good one early on with alchemical stuff. Alchemy, I mean, real world alchemy is a whole bunch of pseudoscience combined with some actual attempts at science. I mean, chemistry came from the practices of alchemy. Correct as did modern pharmaceuticals. But in a fantasy framework, alchemy does provide a mundane way to achieve certain magical equivalences.
1: Okay. Let's not um, go on exchange again. no, no. <laughs> certain magical
0: equivalences.
1: Yes and with this i think if you were going to take that and you were going to try to make things like potions or alchemical equivalents for spells i would tie this to how skilled the person is and i would bring back another second and third edition thing the chance of your concoction or your abilities to fail so something like a spell fizzle so maybe your potion was not made correctly or your concoction was not balanced correctly and so therefore it on occasion doesn't work and therefore you have to roll against a table or a modifier to see if it works as well as you expect and maybe it works even better would be an interesting twist to that as well
0: yeah sometimes it works too well and you get caught in it too
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) again we've talked about like artificers i think that's fairly easy but what are we going to do for the plus one magic sword of awesomeness you know that everybody wants to run with are we just going to bring back masterwork weapons again
0: I think that is the simplest answer. Okay. But not only that, using mundane items in lieu of magic to achieve similar tasks allows you to really exercise the creativity of your players. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, you don't have access to the mold earth cantrip, but by God, you've got a pickaxe.
1: Yep. And you've got several flagons of water. And now we're building traps. And that is one thing. Second edition had, I mean, he had books and books of these huge elaborate Rube Goldberg traps that were largely not magical. And they were just kind of third edition as well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, There was I I can't remember the third party publisher, but there was a book that a friend of ours has that he let me borrow it. And it was traps and treachery. And it's, and it's literally just a book full of traps from, Very simple up to very complex. And I think there were like 25 traps in it. And it was glorious. I mean, there's still still some traps in that book that I still use. Like uh, one that was called After You, where there is a pressure plate. But whenever you step on the pressure plate, it's on a delay. And then the pit that drops is like 10 feet behind you. Oh, okay. So it's for... You know, if you have somebody who you are insisting that they go first because maybe it's an enemy that you captured and you're trying to get them to lead you through the safe way through this layer, you know, and they just step on the pressure plate. And whenever they step off of it, the trap falls, you know, 10, 15 feet behind them. And so the back ranks of your party all drop into this pit. Ooh, I like it.
1: Yeah, that is a fun one.
0: Something like that. Another one that I another one that I use fairly often is, you know, this one's a magical one, not a mechanical one, but it's called One Last Coin where, you know, you're in the room, you're looting it, you're picking up all the money and you just notice a coin that happens to be sitting over in the corner by itself. You're like, oh, somebody missed it. So you go and you pick it up Well, on the underside of that coin was a rune and that rune was a stopper on the trap underneath. <laughs> and so whenever you pick up that coin, you unseal the vessel that was hidden in the floor and an efreet comes out. And okay. he is very unhappy that you're there.
1: I like it. Going back to non-magical replacements for magical things. I think a really fun, interesting and again, anybody could use this. I could see a ranger or a druid using this one, possibly a thief, but instead of sending homing pigeons. You carry, you know, this flock of pigeons, you tie a note and yeah, you send these pigeons off. And that is how you're communicating instead of, you know, via telepathy. I think that would be a really fun and clever way to get around some of that as well.
0: And then you would have, you know, that chance of failure where basically the DM rolls a D20 and on a one something happens to that pigeon between point A and point B and that message never arrives.
1: You summon a cat.
0: (laughs) But I mean... And then, you know, depending on the situation, that risk can be higher or lower because, you know, it was very common in medieval warfare to have, you know, you have these pigeons that they're using to send messages off. And then the other side has hawks that are specifically trained to take those pigeons out of the air.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was even as late as World War One. Yes, Um, absolutely. Hearing was extremely important. And again, that would be. A fun thing to have your party do is, you know, again, if you're Druid or you're Ranger or whoever was a falconeer. Because, I mean, everyone loves having a wolf companion or whatever. But, yeah, having a falcon or an owl companion would definitely pick up some of those errant messages. And then what kind of information could your party get from intercepting these? And so now you have this in lieu of your scrying, you're using just old world espionage.
0: Yeah, I think that would be a whole lot of fun. Yeah. Now, another use, the one that I immediately think of for why you have a class of artisans in your world that are making mundane items that are making items without using magic to make them would be perhaps you don't want to use magic to make an item that you intend to enchant, because if you use magic to create the item, There's always that little bit of residue. Okay. And that little bit of residue can interfere with whatever enchantment you're putting on it. And so that gives you a demand for high quality mundane items.
1: Yes. I could also see this as where your party, if they're looting, you know, defeated foes, maybe they can collect these otherwise magical items. Even if they have been enchanted in some form because they can be otherwise, you know, disenchanted and maybe some of that energy can be otherwise extracted from them. And perhaps maybe the materials or this magical energy is at an extremely high premium and it is very rare. And so you want to find whatever little bit you can to kind of hoard and salvage to repurpose.
0: Yeah, I I like that. Obviously, it gives very strong World of Warcraft vibes. A bit. But yeah, because... It also allows you to implement a law of conservation of energy. You know, energy can't be created or destroyed. It just changes form. Well, this item is magical. It might just be that the magic in this item is not in the same vein as what you're looking for. I mean, you could be saying, you know, we've managed to scrounge up a whole bunch of these plus one daggers, but I don't need a plus one dagger. I need a plus one enchantment on my shield. Okay. And so you are able to use these plus one daggers, draw the energy off of them and transfer it into the shield in order to create that enchantment.
1: You could do that, or the other thing I was thinking, because I was thinking more along the lines of Valerian Steel, because you had summoned, you know, Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. Either that the methodology for making it is lost, or perhaps because it was the easiest way to do it, people were using this magic to produce the initial item. Maybe the items can only hold so much magical energy, and they are filled with just the pure creation of them, because they are made by cutting corners, so they're made by using magic instead of a mundane method. And therefore the weapon itself or the item itself is mundane because it was made via magical means where inversely, if you hand make a mundane item and they could find someone who could later imbue that empty item with a magical, it would have a magical property afterwards. Yeah, I can see that. It
0: also gives me the rabbit trail of maybe items that have an enchantment just innately lose energy over time.
1: Oh, like batteries.
0: Yeah, not to the extent of like, you know, charges. Okay. I mean, it's not that dramatic, but like, say, a plus one magical sword has, say, 10,000 hits in it before the magic just fizzles.
1: I wouldn't even do it that way. I would say it has a time frame, literally like a battery. So once it's created, it starts wearing off, and you maybe have six months, a year, and then it has to be refreshed.
0: Yeah, and that would also give you a reason to be collecting all of these items with minor enchantments on them specifically so you can pull the energy off of them and recharge your stuff.
1: Now, again, we're supposed to be talking about Monday, items. Are. I really do enjoy the concept of fading magic instead of, you know, eternal magic. I, the, the concept of fading magic is actually really, really interesting. And maybe that is why the magic in your world is so limited maybe whatever the innate magic source of the world for your party you're going out and you have to figure out why it's fading because the magic in your world has noticeably and suddenly started to fade and that would be a, an amazing adventure hook
0: right and we also have at this point the ability to tie in certain materials which are present already in the D&D mythos that are very powerful items that are not magical. Specifically, adamant, adamantine, adamantine, however you want to say it. It is a very strong material. It is sometimes referred to as meteor steel. Yes. Um, By itself, armor made from adamant makes the
1: wearer immune to critical hits. That is such a lovely armor to have. I love that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The weapons made from it, deal extra damage to like constructs and structures and stuff. Yeah. It basically gives you the siege property. Neither one of those are magical effects. Those are innate properties of the material. Yeah. Going on to mithril. Mithril in older editions basically made your armor, whatever you were making out of it, one armor weight category less. So full plate mithril armor was medium armor. It wasn't heavy armor.
1: Yeah, basically Mithril is modern world titanium.
0: Yes, and it just gives you lighter armor in 5e. It just removes the uh, penalties, the disadvantage that you get from weight from from a lot of armors. So like it removes your disadvantage to stealth. It removes disadvantage on swimming, I think, or certain athletics sort of stuff. Um, I don't know if that's actually in the rules or just something that gets used sometimes.
1: I know it does remove the penalties from stealth. I don't know about the athletic chunks, but it would make sense.
0: Yeah. And then there were some other materials in older editions that you don't really see much in 5e. One that I can specifically remember is I think it's dark wood. It's the D&D equivalent of iron wood. Yeah, where it, it is a wood that is very dense, very hard. And it allowed basically it was so that druids could have steel equivalent shields and armor without wearing metal.
1: Right. Because in older editions, particularly 3rd edition, druids could not use any kind of metal in their arms or armor. Absolutely, yeah. So
0: what we have now is we have ability to bring in different materials that have innate properties that give you certain benefits that are not inherently magical. Right. So like if you have the ability to give yourself asbestos clothes, congratulations, you now have resistance to fire damage.
1: And for this, like I said, I would fully encourage your players to think along these lines because it does absolutely promote your player creativity. And so... Let them see how they can go. I mean, if they could somehow create a battery and a current and then get something that is magnetic or, you know, produce their own light source in some way beyond a lantern. I mean, there's a lot of things, just early tech for real world. If they can figure out a way to carry this and affect it in their game, go with it because that's kind of what you're looking for is you're wanting to see how the players can stretch the limits of the world without the use of magic.
0: Yeah, so maybe this one character has a bunch of studs of hematite attached to the front of their shield. Now the front of their wooden shield is magnetic. And so now whenever they block an attack, if the attacker has a metallic weapon, has a steel weapon, there is a chance that you can disarm them because it oh, gets stuck to the front of your shield. That would be so clever. I would you love know, that. Yeah. Well, just little things like that, because you know that would be something that you could do with an enchantment. Yes. But it's so much cooler whenever you use the natural materials to try and accomplish it.
1: I think poisons in this game would be a lot more prevalent as well because it's yes. going to be an easier way to put out damage. And again, I would make your characters roll those nature checks, roll those, you know, dexterity. I mean, how well are you at extracting things and putting this on your blade without cutting yourself or having it soak in through your own skin? But otherwise, yeah, run with these things. Can you grab that snake quick enough and milk it for venom? I mean, yeah, there would be a lot of different ways to do this, but definitely run with it.
0: And it also encourages what we have talked about in the past. It encourages harvesting materials. Yes. It encourages seeking out certain creatures because their components would have an additional benefit. I mean, it would be... Like, you know, you're actually seeking out this colony of Ankegs because you need the acid.
1: Yeah, acid weapons would be amazing, too. I mean, just acid flasks in general. Yeah, Um, a bunch of little
0: ceramic crocs full of acid. Yeah. And it also adds additional peril to encountering creatures that are not from the material plane. Yes. Added peril to dealing with demons and devils dealing with Celestials, dealing with Fae.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: um, Dealing with the undead. Well, I think
1: dealing with the Fae is less so because the Fae tend to have that natural abhorration of iron anyway. Uh, They do come in with their own magical weapons, but they have that immunity to magic innately as well. So I think of the outsiders, the Fae might be the easiest to deal with in a non-magical world because again, that magic that people would normally use as a crutch is not there and the fae would not have as much protection against it
0: but if we're going to go back to the mythology the folklore aspect of the fae the fae have a magic of their own so the fae may be the source of magic in this Ooh. otherwise mundane world and yeah. that's why they're dangerous because they're magical
1: and i could totally see the fae again going back to a fading magic That is absolutely something the Fae wouldn't steal because they're not going to leave something like that laying around permanently. And they would get people used to using that magic and then slowly per their bargain that nobody really looked at the fine print slowly withdraw. So now they are in more of a, you know, it's kind of like they're starting jonesing for that magic. So now they're going to make a deal in order to get it back.
0: And it could be a thing of the magic that is used in these enchantments is literally ripped out of the Fae. You Ooh. know, because there is that conflict going between the fey realms and the mundane realms. And so the fey are using their magic, they are using it to establish their hold on their territory. But the practitioners on the mundane side have found a way to basically harvest magic from the fey. And that could even oh. be where the root of this conflict is from because somebody figured out that they could do this. How they figured it out is unimportant, but they captured a Fae and they basically milked all of the magic out of them to
1: make these enchanted things. Oh, yeah, that would make some angry, angry Fae. I love it. I love oh, it. Oh, yeah. And that, that would me a bit of the beginning to Neverwinter Nights is I believe... You had the Water Davian creatures, and one of them was a nymph, and they were planning to use this nymph for part of a cure to a plague. And she was less than thrilled about it. But yeah, Understandably. That, yeah. <laughs> but no, I think it would take a bit of work and planning for the DM, but building this world that is a low magic world, even if it's just to start as a plot hook for your characters, really does open itself to a lot of opportunities. It does... Open the door wide open to role play, which 5e thankfully does lean heavier into. So this gives your characters a bit more ability to kind of explore their world and reason things out versus just I have magic. It's a quick, easy fix.
0: Right. Because now you have to establish why you have magic. Yeah. And and that can always be an interesting aspect to a character.
1: And again, this is one of those things. And I am a huge proponent of using games and education and again this leads itself into if like if you're homeschooling or you're a teacher some form of creative writing prompt you can go and like here's your character come up with a story come up with the reasons let's do some critical thinking what do you have what kind of things can you express what kind of things can you make that you wouldn't have otherwise and even as adults out of school those are some good muscles to flex
0: yeah all right I think I've exhausted what I had to bring to the table today.
1: Yeah, I think we covered some really good ideas. I would love to hear from our listeners to kind of think what kind of things you would come up with in a non-magical setting or how you could get around things. Because there are so many things and I don't know what I don't know. And so someone's going to come up with like, hey, you can do this. And it's going to completely take me from left field. And I'm going to love it because like, oh, I never thought of that. And that's going to like... Set my brain working in all kinds of different directions. So I, I would love to hear what you guys come up with.
0: Yeah. So we had, let's see here, we recorded our last episode before we went to RobCon. We have since run our games at RobCon. And I think that, at least in my sessions, it was a smashing success.
1: Yes. My first session, unfortunately, it was too early, so nobody signed up. Uh, It was was
0: literally in in the first time slot of the con.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was like they expected players there as doors opened at 9 a.m. And it just wasn't happening. It just
0: didn't happen.
1: But the game ran in the time we wanted to. We're looking somewhere between two to three hours for the session. We had some sessions where the players were in the seats and they were invested in the story and they were going and following the storyline perfectly. And it ran well. We had a session where... We had a band of chaos and the story still functioned well, even through intentional chaos, which I yes. think was a great stress test for it.
0: Yeah. So now going forward, given my second session in Verdigree, we now have established canon of the cult of Balthazar, Ooh. which is the pro union effort. Nice. And also the cult of Dave, Dave, (laughs) yeah, Dave, the Bugbear. because during the skill challenge where they're trying to uh, do the thing, I'm not going to spoil it because somebody might want to run it later. But during the skill challenge, they had an event come up where some bandits tried to commandeer their vehicle. And Dave decided that, well, I have expertise in intimidation, so I'm going to intimidate my way out of this and rolled a natural 20. And so the Cult of Dave was born as Dave just intimidated them out of town. And that's awesome. Yeah. And so the Cult of Dave is St. Dave is going to be the patron saint of Caravan Guards. Uh, okay.
1: I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, just to pay homage to
0: my amazing players on Sunday afternoon.
1: Yeah, and for those that came out and played with us, thank you guys so very much. It was great seeing you all. I actually even enjoyed the Chaos Band. Like I said, it was a wonderful stress test, and you honestly need parties like that, and they had fun, and there was a ton of laughter, and that's really what the game is about. It's always about having fun, and so um, I, I have never seen a fighter who absolutely refused to fight anything before. It was kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> And in that particular game,
0: they all decided that they had to have G names. Yes. So I had a cleric named Garden Hose, <laughs> who they would intentionally run into melee and then try to cast Guiding Bolt at something. Yeah. Uh, they would try to point blank Guiding Bolt things, and that was that was interesting.
1: Yes. Um, Honestly, it was a fun game. All sessions that people played, they seemed to really enjoy, and so I think we're about ready to release a Sridian.
0: Yeah, we're getting close. I am starting on layout for it. By the time we are able to get our game with Of Mice and Meta Monsters finally rescheduled and out, by the time that releases, it should be up on the store. Excellent.
1: That's so, going to be super exciting.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm real excited about that. Coming up next episode, we are going to be having another interview. And we're finally going to have another live stream interview after however long it's been since our last live stream interview. (laughs) The crew from Tabletop Journeys is coming back. They are going to be talking about their new Kickstarter project, which I'm going to edit this part out because I forgot to actually look it up, what their uh, upcoming Kickstarter is. Hey, everybody. Ian here. You didn't really think that you were going to get through a whole episode without me recording a correction, did you? So first off, the interview with Tabletop Journeys is going to be on Saturday, September 30th, still at 9 p.m. The project that we're going to be discussing is Tabletop Journeys' new Kickstarter project, The Traveler's Guide to Factions, which I'm not sure all of the details on yet, but it seems to be a tie-in to the upcoming Planescape book. So I'm really excited to find out more about it. I'm really excited to present it to you. They are great guys who make great content, and I look forward to seeing all of you on Saturday. I can't wait to do that. Twitch.tv slash undercommon taste. Huzzah. And if you can't catch that, then it'll be the episode that releases on the following Wednesday. So thank you everyone for joining us tonight. We did get a little bit off topic, but I think we stayed pretty close to our intended topic. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email undercommon taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message to our barely functioning Twitter account <laughs> at UCT homebrew. We are also on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, and Mastodon at undercommon taste. You can find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommon taste. That's where our write-ups go. You can also find us on Itch. Uh, undercommontaste.itch.io where you can find our liminal horror adventure Beneath the Lake and my solo RPG Forever Home and soon our first 5e adventure. We are also on Discord. You can find a link to the Discord in our show notes. It's probably the best way to get in touch with us anymore. If you want to come and chat with us, please come join the Discord and we'll be happy to talk to you
1: absolutely if this is your first podcast or you'd like to hear some of our other podcasts welcome you can find our podcast on whatever podcatcher you like to use we're on pretty much all of them now as always if you can give us a rating and review this helps increase our visibility and it lets us know what you guys want to hear more of
0: stay safe everyone and we will see you in almost two weeks with tabletop journeys happy gaming thanks for joining us for another episode of under common taste our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Kroll and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Kroll. Our logo is by David Sutherland. You can find more of David's work on deviantart.com slash davidsutherland or on instagram.com slash underscore 73. We'll be back in two weeks, so stay safe